All right, so um, I never said peace be with you. Peace be with you. Um, all right, we are in this series in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we've been making our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Today is actually Matthew part 29. Uh, but today is also, in the liturgical calendar, today is Christ the King Sunday. And if you're familiar with the liturgical calendar, Christ the King Sunday is the last Sunday of the liturgical year. So a few years ago, uh, maybe quite a few years ago now, we, we as a church started to learn a little bit about the benefits of, uh, of, of, of uh, living into the liturgical calendar. And one of the things that I love about the liturgical calendar is that it's often displayed by a circle. And you know, we live in, in, a, in a Western mindset that is very, very linear, and there's great things about thinking linearly. But man, there is something so beautiful when you think about your year and you think of it as this circle where we are intentionally rehearsing the story of, of Jesus and that there's actually built-in seasons of the year where we sink our teeth into various movements of, of Jesus' person and work. And, uh, and that's, that's the benefit that we've seen from the liturgical calendar. Uh, you, if you attend here, you know that it, it's not something that like, dominates us, but it is something that we have, we have benefited from and that we, that we learn from. And uh, this year is a little interesting because we have some extra Sundays, the way that the Christmas Eve falls and the way the Sundays are. Uh, today is uh, Christ the King Sunday, and it's after Thanksgiving. Usually Christ the King Sunday is before Thanksgiving, but this year we kind of have a bonus Sunday. Uh, the, the season of Advent starts next week. Uh, and so today is the last day of the liturgical year, and uh, it is celebrated as Christ the King. And so um, in, the, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, it, is, it is quite easy uh, to think about this subject of Christ the King, uh, because Matthew is known for his focus on the kingdom. Uh, the subtitle of our series is Matthew, the Gospel of the Kingdom. Uh, Matthew has a high priority in presenting Jesus as king, in talking about the reality of the coming kingdom. Uh, it's like Matthew, uh, it's almost like Matthew wouldn't know how to talk about what Jesus is doing if you took the word kingdom away from him. It's, it's fully associated with how he understands Jesus to be moving on the earth and what Jesus will be doing uh, in the future. Matthew is convinced that Jesus is the Christ who brings God's kingdom to earth. Uh, the Gospels are all revealing the advent. This term advent means the arrival, the coming of Jesus. And like the other Gospels, Matthew states his belief right off the bat. If you were to open up your Bible, and if you have your Bible, you should do that. In Matthew chapter 1, you know, we get this, this great genealogy. And about a year ago, we started the series on Matthew by looking at the genealogy of, that Matthew gives us, this genealogy of Jesus. And in the first chapter, just in Matthew's first chapter, he uses the term Christ four times. And so right off the bat, he is saying that he believes that Jesus is the Christ. Mark, Luke, and John, they all basically do the same thing. If you were to hop over to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he starts right off by saying, this is the gospel of Jesus the Christ. Luke, you get a, a, a whole bunch of uh, hints in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
And then John, just like Matthew, uses the term Christ four times in his opening chapter. So in all four gospels, right off the bat, the authors are saying Jesus Christ. They, they, they want it to be said out loud and they want it to be said multiple times in clear ways that Jesus is the Christ. But what does Christ mean? Now, some of you, you may, maybe have spent time with this, but others, maybe you think it's like, maybe it's Jesus' last name. You know, Jesus Christ, Mary Christ, Joseph Christ. Like, it's his last name. It, it's, it's, it's not his last name. The, the term Christ actually means anointed one. It means anointed one. And, and it's, it, a way to think about it would be this. Christ is a claim, not a name. It, it's a title that Jesus is given and we're going to talk about that more in a moment. For right now, I want us to realize that it is the claim that Jesus is the king. Matthew and the other biblical authors, Jesus himself, they declare that Jesus is the Messiah. And this word for Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. And so right off the bat, the four gospel writers, they want us to see this clearly. They are associating Jesus with the long-awaited Messiah. That's what Christ means. It means he is the king. Uh, in the ESV, the version of the Bible that I typically preach from, uh, it records the word Christ 534 times in the New Testament. Almost half of those, 224 of them, are paired with Jesus. So 224 times in the New Testament, you get either Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, some sort of pairing of, of Jesus with the term Christ. In other words, the New Testament is fully committed to showing us that Jesus is the king that we all need. And these gospels are revealing his arrival. They're telling us that he's, that he's shown up, the advent, the arrival, the coming of the king. Well, Jesus is the king. In Matthew chapter 1, uh, Jesus, we see Jesus as the son of David, the long-awaited Messiah. The framework of the gospel is rooted in Jesus' kingship. If you think of the incarnation... The incarnation is Jesus taking on a human body and coming to this earth. That, that's what we celebrate at, at Christmas, is God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. If you think about that, the incarnation, and the significance of the incarnation, if you think about the cross, if you think about the, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, if you think about Jesus ascending back to the Father, these things are all so essential to the message of Jesus. And when you put them together, you begin to realize that there's this scandalous truth that the gospel wants to lay before us. And that is that Jesus has come to do something at great cost to himself for our benefit. That Jesus came to, to, to rescue people from their sins. It's incredible. It's a, you know, salvation is a free gift of grace that's offered through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But for that all to make sense in the biblical story, we must understand Jesus as king. Because how else can Jesus call his followers to believe the gospel before he died on the cross? Before he rose again? If you think of that passage that I just mentioned in Mark chapter, uh, Mark chapter 1, when he says, repent and believe the gospel, the kingdom of God is at hand. I had a friend text me one time, uh, and, and they, were, they were wrestling with that text, and they said, something's off. Something's off. If the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins, then how could Jesus tell his followers to believe the gospel in Mark 1? 
It hasn't even happened yet. And you could say, well, he was telling them to you know, believe it down the road. Or you could say the author went back and added it. And Jesus didn't really say that. The, the, the better way to understand this is that to understand the nature of the gospel, we have to understand Jesus as the one true king. And that when, then when we, then when we uh, survey his life, and we see his relationship with the Father, and we see him going to the cross, and we see him saying that he can forgive sins, and we see him rising from the dead, and we see him ascending back to the Father. These things all begin to make sense. They are all essential to the message of Jesus, but they are rightly understood when we think about the reality of this kingship or the kingdom of God. Why does it matter that Jesus came? Why does his declaration of forgiveness matter? Have you ever thought about that? Maybe if you've grown up around this, you've never even thought about that. Why does it matter if Jesus says you are forgiven? I think we would agree that if someone came up to you and you have a huge credit card debt and they just came up to you and said, all of your credit card debt is forgiven, you would be like, do you represent Bank of America? Because if you don't, I don't really care. Yeah, I don't really care what you say unless you actually have something, some sort of authority to forgive that debt. See, when, when Jesus actually makes these crazy statements that he, like, he actually forgives people. Jesus has the audacity to look at individual people and say, I, I, I forgive you. Your, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders are going crazy because they know what that means. They, they know the kind of authority that Jesus is asserting in that moment. Why does it matter that Jesus says he can forgive sin? Well, if he's the king, now, now we got something. Now, now this is not just some crazy person saying I can forgive your credit card debt. This is actually the king of the world saying I can forgive the greatest debt you'll ever know. Why does his conquering of death matter? Why does his promise to return matter? Like, why does making all things new matter? All of these things begin to come to light when you realize that this, this, this king, that Jesus is a king, and this world is his kingdom. He's the one with the authority. Because Jesus is the king, uh, the king that we all need, and alignment with his kingdom is the only way this world will work. That, 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 that would be an answer. Why does all that stuff matter? Because Jesus is the king that we all need and alignment with his kingdom is the only way this world is gonna work. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. I already said that. But Messiah has both royal and salvific implications. And salvific is just a fancy word. It just means salvation. Implications for our salvation. And they are found in the concept of saving people specifically saving people from their sins. And if you were to run through the Old Testament, you are going to find all the, all the heavy hitters, all the biggest prophets, the biggest books in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, they, they all reference this idea that the Messiah is going to come and forgive the people. He's going to save them from their sins. It's, it's, it's a huge theme in the Old Testament. So when Jesus picks that up in the New Testament, the religious leaders know what Jesus is trying to say. He's trying to say, I'm that guy. I'm the Messiah. I'm the king. I'm the one who can actually do that. All of those prophecies that said the Messiah is going to save the people from their sins, I'm the guy. How will he do it? How's he going to do it? And people had to be thinking, is this the son? Is this the long-awaited one? Is this, is this the one? Is this David's son who will reign forever? Well, the answer is no. 
Solomon uh, clearly presents the reality that he is not uh, the, the, the king that Jesus or that God had promised. But that sense of the David, the son of David, the promise of the son of David was one that stuck out to Israel and that Israel was clinging to decade after decade, century after century. They longed for the son of David who would rule and reign forever. So when they read these passages in the Old Testament and they saw that someone would come and save the people from their sin, this Messiah, this promised one, they were thinking, yes, this is going to be the king, the son of David who will rule forever. So that sense of salvation is tied in with this sense of royalty, this sense of kingship. Now there's so much more that the Jewish people did not see coming. It certainly includes Messiah as king, but there's all of this extra stuff. There's all of these ways in which Jesus shocks them and Jesus surprises them. It's one of the reasons why the religious leaders couldn't accept Jesus. They had a, they had a, they had a presupposition of who this king was supposed to be, of how he was supposed to act, how we thought he would come what we thought he would do. They thought he would raise up an army. They thought he would overthrow their, captive, their captors. They, they had all of these presuppositions of what this king would do. And Jesus comes and shows that the storyline's a little different than they thought. It's a little bit more scandalous, a little bit more crazy. But it includes this concept of kingship. Again, in Jesus' genealogy, David shows up three times, three times. The gospel includes more than kingship, but not less than kingship. And so on this Sunday, when we celebrate Christ the King, and we think about the reality of Jesus as King, I want to invite you into the reality that this helps us understand the whole gospel message. The work that God is about in the world is revealing to us who this King is, and he's better than any of us could have guessed, better than any of us could have hoped. So the coming, the arrival, the advent uh, of Jesus changed the world, but it changed the world because Jesus is the Christ, because Jesus is the King. The, the four Gospels reveal that Jesus is the one true Messiah. He, he, you know, he's the King, but this, this is where the scandal comes in. What they start to show us is that this King isn't just for Israel. That Israel's king is not just for Israel. That he's the king of the whole world. And if you look at that text in Matthew chapter 4 that C.O. read for us, hints in what he quotes from Isaiah that indicate it goes beyond Israel's borders. He actually references of the Gentiles. Do you, do you see that in, in verse 15? The Galilee of the Gentiles. These are all little scandalous ideas that Jesus is bringing to bear and saying, I'm the king, but I'm not just the king for one people group. I'm not just the king for one ethnicity. I'm the king of the whole world. And so Israel has an incredible place in God's story because they were the ones who had the lineage that brought the Messiah to the world. But then the shocker is he's not just for Israel. He's the king of the whole world. He's the king for every person. He's the king who will rule and reign over everything. So Jesus changes the world, but he changes the world because he is the Christ. This means that following Jesus is not just a political statement. It means that following Jesus is a huge political statement. 
That if you're going to call yourself a follower of Jesus, that if you are one who has put your hope and your trust in Jesus, that is a huge political statement. There are a lot of biblical scholars that would agree that the primary reason that Jesus ended up actually being crucified was because of his royal claims, was because of what he had to say about his kingship. This is, a, this is a, a huge statement. And if you are going to associate yourself with him, if you are going to follow him, you are saying something about your political life. But it's not a political statement like most of us think. It's not a competition to find the ways that Jesus supports your political party or to find the ways that Jesus supports your political preferences. We, we are way too invested in trying to, to have our politics and then get Jesus to agree with us. That, that's not the political statement that Jesus is calling his people into. Not at all. The, the statement is actually, it, it, to, to trust Jesus is to admit that he is the one true king and submit yourself to his rule and his reign over all things. We, we are to be his people. We are to follow him. Peter says that we are a peculiar people, that there's something weird, there's something odd about the people who say that Jesus is their king. That we would actually look at our life and say, there's one person who, who gets to say what we do. There's one person who rules and reigns over us. There's no king but Jesus. Uh, an author said this, the church is not to be found at the center of a left-right political world. The church is to be a species of its own kind, confounding both left and right. Every once in a while, I have someone come up to me and they will say something like, I can't, I can't figure out your politics. Are, are you a Republican or are you a Democrat? And it's like, I don't mean to be like some sort of a jerk, but it's like, I'm, I'm neither of those things. Like, I, I am literally trying to say, what does it look like to let Jesus be the king? What, what does it look like to take an issue and instead of running to the DNC or to the RNC and say, what's our, what's our position on this? Like, actually trying to hold it before the king of the world and say, what, what do you have to say about this? And my experience has been, it creates a weird camp, a weird camp of people. It's, it's a camp of people that care about life in the womb and that care about race relations, that care about the poor and that care about the sanctity of marriage. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a weird camp where you have people getting upset with you about one thing and, uh, and then loving you for another thing. And you say, well, hang on a second. What's, what's the standard that we're looking at here? Who is it that decides what our view is on marriage? Who is it that decides what our view is on abortion or life in the womb? Who is it that determines what we view about other ethnicities, about the poor? These are things that Jesus has something to say. And it's not because he's a Republican or a Democrat. It's because he's a king. And he has something to say about how you live your life. And there should be a stepping of our, I mean, we should be stepping on each other's toes. We should, we should not be aligned with one political party. I said this a few weeks ago, but what happens in churches is often they become an echo chamber where red churches get redder politically and blue churches get bluer. And then when you bring up an idea, everybody agrees with the idea because that's what your political views are. And everybody thinks it's okay. 
And so you end up this warped version of trying to follow Jesus, but your, 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 your positions look like the Republican Party or your positions look like the Democratic Party. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm the king. I'm not, I'm not living blue and red. Like, I'm, I'm the king. And so there's this willingness to submit ourselves to his rule and to his reign. You know, in 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says that we are ambassadors. That if you've given your life to Jesus, you are his ambassador. And do you know how embassies work? An embassy, let's just say in the city of New York, there's an embassy for the, uh, the nation of Ireland. When you go into the embassy of the nation of Ireland, that square footage, the, the, the plot of land that the Irish embassy sits on is considered sovereign soil for Ireland. When you are in their embassy, Ireland's rules are what reign. That's how embassies work. That's where ambassadors live. And then what do ambassadors do? They are in a foreign country. They live in this embassy, which is this square footage, this plot of land that is dedicated to their homeland. And then they are to be ambassadors. They are to speak on behalf of their king. That they say what their king would say. That the way we're supposed to live in the world is that as, as the people of God, as, as the church, we are this plot of land where his sovereignty rules and reigns here. It's his rules, not ours. And then we are actually voicing what the king would say to the watching world. That's a peculiar people. That's a holy nation. That, that, that's unique. That's confounding both left and right. We should be a subculture. And a rebuke to us is that we're not. A rebuke to us is that we actually often do fit quite nicely into little political uh, molds. And I think Jesus breaks our political molds. He calls us to something better. He says he's the king. And if we're going to follow him, that means it's his rule and his reign. Well, it means we're subjects of the king. You know, every time I think about uh, Jesus as king or I teach about Jesus as king, I, I realize that I am just way too complacent, that I am, I am too, too casual. And maybe you can relate to that. It is easy to find ourselves, you know, thinking of Jesus or treating Jesus as almost like a distant friend who has good advice but doesn't really care if we listen to his advice or not. Uh, maybe you can relate to, to treating him that way, even if you don't think you're treating him that way. Just look at the last seven days of your life. How often have you considered Jesus' advice and discarded it? How often have you not even considered Jesus' advice? Uh, one of my daughters and I, were, we started watching uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe this, this past week, the other night. And maybe you remember that, that famous interaction between Mr. and Mrs. Beaver uh, and, the, and the four kids. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, there's these four kids. They end up in a, a fantasy land called Narnia. And, um, and they, they, you know, the beavers talk, the animals talk. Okay, so um, you, you just have to read the book or, or watch the movie. <clears throat> um, but there's this interaction where the, the, the kids run into these two beavers, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are still faithful to Aslan. And Aslan is the lion in the movie, which is the Christ figure. And so he's represented as, as, this, as this lion. And Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are still faithful to him, even though it's been winter. And you know, that, that's, that's indicating, it's showing us that sin has, has filled the world. And it's, it's, it's winter. And they actually say it's always winter and never Christmas. 
meaning that we get all the bad stuff and we don't get any of the good stuff. The world is broken. But Mr. and Mrs. Beaver have remained faithful to Aslan. And and this is, is, uh, they, they, they find out that the kids don't know anything about him. They, they don't know who Aslan is. And uh, boy, are Mr. and Mrs. Beaver excited to tell them about them, about, about Aslan. And they want to tell them about the prophecy regarding him. So this is what Mr. Beaver, this is how the conversation goes. Is, is he a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And you know, that, that little interaction where you have the ignorance of Jesus, you have this ignorance of, of who, who is this king? And as they begin to realize that the imagery of the lion is so great, because it's like, hang on, I'm not sure I want to approach a lion. I'm not sure I want to be around a lion. And is he safe? Is that, is that a good idea? And for Mr. and Mrs. Beaver to actually say, and he's good. He's the king and he's good. Another way to think about the, the, the weightiness of being a subject of, of this king, you know, if you were not born as a citizen of the U.S., but you wanted to become one, the last step in that, um, in that process of becoming a citizen is you taking the oath of allegiance to the United States. Now, um, maybe some of you, like, remember uh, civics in high school or something, or, or maybe for some reason you've read this pledge recently, um, but it is pretty disorienting. Uh, the, the, oath, uh, to the, uh, the oath of allegiance to the United States, uh, and in case you're wondering, I've, I've got it on the slide. So here, here's, here's how it reads. Naturalization Oath of Allegiance to the United States of America. I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, uh, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen. That I will support and defend the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by law, that I will perform non-combatant service in the armed forces of the United States when required by law, that I will perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by the law, and that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, so help me God. Whew. I read that maybe six or eight months ago, and I was a little uh, taken aback. I, I didn't, didn't realize, I, I never had to read an oath like that. I was, I was born, born a citizen here. Uh, but I, I, I read that and I thought, boy, that's, uh, 
there's some really weighty language in what we would ask someone to, to pledge and commit to if they were to become a, a citizen of our country. And it just makes me think that maybe we should have an oath of allegiance to, to Jesus. And I think there's been efforts at this. There's been pledges that have been written and things like that. But if we were to take this statement and just play with it a little bit and say, what would uh, an oath of allegiance look like to King Jesus? Maybe it could look something like this. I pledge allegiance to King Jesus. I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce all allegiance and fidelity to any other leader, president, party, or state of whom or which I have been a subject or citizen, that I will support and defend the gospel of King Jesus against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will endure hardship on behalf of King Jesus, that I will commit daily to do what the King says, and that I take this obligation freely with my whole self because the king is good and he offers me the good life with him. So help me God. That kind of language. You know, I, my guess is that if you've been exposed to the gospel over the course of your life, um, there's a good chance that you've been in, in, invited into or exposed to uh, maybe what's called easy believism, which is just this sense of like, um, it's fire insurance. Like if you pray or say magic words, uh, that then you have this ticket to get out of hell and into heaven. And if you, you know, keep, that, keep that ticket in your back pocket, then you're good to go. And the rest of your life, you're just, you can do however you want, live however you want, be whoever you want. Um, and the gospel is a scandal. Jeez, the gospel is a scandal. The gospel is the good news that Jesus saves us in spite of us. That the biggest pile of sin that you could imagine is not, you know, there is no pile of sin that's too big for Jesus to forgive. The gospel is a scandal. But the, gospel, but the Bible also says that the gospel actually bears fruit. That James says faith without works is dead. That there's this, there's this recognition that if you have actually been brought to life, then there's going to be fruit production in, in, in your life. You know, if you think of a tree, the fruit doesn't make the tree alive but the fruit does prove that the tree is alive. And the only way that we're actually given to, to, to be able to evaluate our own trust in Jesus is to be able to look at our life and say, is, is, there, is there fruit of repentance? Is there fruit of faith? Is there, is there evidence that Jesus is, is changing me? Is there evidence that this, that this heart is actually alive? And we have sometimes been, been given a, a message or been communicated this idea that you know, we just have to pray a magic prayer and then it, it does, and the rest of it doesn't matter. And it's just fire insurance. And, and I think that that's, 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 that's dishonoring to the king. I think it misunderstands the reality of, of this message of the gospel. This scandal of the forgiveness that the king offers is rooted in the reality that you actually become a subject to the king. That you actually become an ambassador for the king. When you think of a phrase or the language that we just read, does that make you nervous? Does it make you nervous to say, I renounce everything and no king but Jesus? Could it be that you want to be the king of your life? That you want to have the final say on what you do and what you don't do? Look, that would not be uncommon in our current culture, but it just, it won't work with Jesus. It won't work with him. That, that's not the nature of the relationship that Jesus is calling us into. You know, N.T. Wright says the good news creates a new situation and calls for new decisions. The, the, the good news is news. 
The good news is a declaration. The good news is a set of facts. And those facts include the fact that Jesus is the king of the world and he's coming back to set up a kingdom. And as you consider those facts, what, what N.T. Wright says is right. You now have this, the, the, you know, the good news creates a new situation. Now you're faced with a decision. What are you going to do about this king who's on his way back? Are you going to respond to that in faith? Are you going to respond to that at all? See, the Bible is inviting us to see that the whole earth, including our hearts, are being ruled by the wrong king. That, that, that's what the Bible is telling us. It's showing us that what's happening out here is because the wrong king is in charge. The king of sin, the king of self, the king of pride. And a whole bunch of little kings that whisper lies about what they can offer. But you get into the gospels and these four gospels reveal that Jesus is the one true king. And then the book of Acts all the way to the end of the Bible is working out what that looks like for his followers. But you got to go all in. You, you, you got to give it all to Jesus. Half measures won't work. No one who comes to Jesus asking to be rescued will ever be turned away. Yourself, Jesus is going to tell you that that won't work. And just in, one, and just in a little bit, in, Matthew, in our series in Matthew, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8. And there's somebody that comes to Jesus and they say, I'll follow you anywhere. And Jesus is like, are you sure about that? I don't have anywhere to lay my head. I don't have anything. And it's almost like this person shows up and they're like, I'm so committed. I'll do anything for you. And Jesus is like, hang on a minute. Count, count the cost. There's other times where Jesus says no king enters a war without counting the cost of the war. Nobody tries to build a tower without running a budget first. Je Jesus is saying, I want to be upfront with you. It's everything. The price tag is everything. You, you, you give me everything. Just, just run through the Bible and look at the passages that talk about the cost of following Jesus. Jesus says you've got to give up everything. It's all for him. You might think that some parts of the Bible are really hard to obey. You, you, some, some of us might raise our hand and say, yes, I, I second that. I, I understand why you might think that. I, I can relate. But have you considered that nothing that is said in the, in the Bible is that shocking if you submitted yourself to, the, to Jesus as the king of your life? If your presupposition was, I just do what the king says. I just do what the king says. It's not a coin toss. It's not a debate. It's not an evaluation. Do I think this is good? Do I think this is bad? Is this what I want? Is this not? What, what if it was just, I do what the king says? He's the king of the world. Is he safe? He's not safe, but he's good, I tell you. He's the king. See, if you've trusted Jesus, then you are now a citizen of his kingdom. And this king is good. And there's a pattern in the Old Testament, actually throughout human history. If you have a good king, the people prosper. If you have a bad king, the people suffer. And the message of Christ as king is that Jesus is the good king this world has been looking for all along. What if you believe that? What if you believe that Jesus is king, that he is good, and that if you just did what he says, it would bring you life? Like the good life. Not the life that you would have designed, but the life that you've dreamed of, whether you know it or not. 
What if you woke up every morning and realized that the biggest battle you will have is not to obey, but to believe? To actually believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he's good, that he can be trusted. Trusted with everything you've got. You know, next week starts the season of Advent. And I love thinking about this as we enter something like that. In Matthew chapter 1, we are told that, that he's going to be given the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And at the end of Matthew's gospel, chapter 28, we are told that he'll never leave us. So he shows up, and then at the end of the gospel, the promise is he's not going anywhere. And if you add to that, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, you find out that nothing can separate us. God is with us. He's not going anywhere. And nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Listen to these words. Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, it sounds to be too good to be true, but it is. It sounds too good to be true, but it really is. The, 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 the gospel is, is such a crazy scandal. That this message of a king who would have every right and every reason to, to wipe us out and say, let's start over, actually came and substituted himself so that we could be brought in. God showed up, promised to never leave, and says, if you've run to Christ, nothing can separate you from him. Nothing that he holds you in his hand tighter than you could ever hold on to him. You know, the message of the gospel, the question of the gospel is not how tightly do you hold on to God, it's how tightly he holds on to you. This is the good news of a good king. The gospel tells us that he's on his way. He came the first time to inaugurate his kingdom. He's sitting on his throne in heaven, and there is a day coming when he will return and reign and rule here when everything will be made right, every tear will be wiped away, all sin will be washed away. It's the best news. As we come to the table, you know, we once again proclaim his death, and we proclaim his death through the bread, which represents his body. We proclaim his death through the cup, which represents his blood. And when we take this meal, we are saying to him and to each other that we believe return. When, when we get the instructions for the communion table, you know what it says? It says, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me until I show back up. Until I come, keep doing this. Keep reminding yourself of who I am, of what I've done, of, 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 of the relationship and the reality that exists between me and you. 
At this table, we are proclaiming his life, his death, his resurrection until he comes again to physically rule and reign as king. So if you've trusted Jesus with your whole life, then this meal makes all the sense in the world. Come get the bread, come get the cup, be nourished again. But if you haven't, then I would invite you to consider that. And instead of drinking this cup and eating this bread, maybe stay where you're at. And, and re instead of receiving the elements, receive Christ. There, there will be prayers on the screen during, the, during this time. And one of them is the prayer of, of seeking the truth. And maybe you're here and you're like, man, my mind is so foggy. I'm so confused. I don't know what's true. I don't know what I should believe. Well, there's some language to help you with that. And then there's another prayer. And it's the prayer of belief. And that is, if you're sitting here and you're saying, no, I, I, I absolutely believe this. I believe that Jesus came to, 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 to rescue me, that he's the good king who can save his people from their sins. Then there's some language that can help you with that. If our servers will please come, let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, this Sunday where we're invited to consider the kingship of Jesus. God, that's not something that is, is uh, one time a year, but we do thank you for the opportunity to focus on it and to ask ourselves legitimate questions about how that plays out in the day-to-day, -day, in our own hearts, in our own lives. Uh, God, we need your help. Uh, we Christ, we thank you for him uh, going to the cross and dying in our place and substituting himself for us, living the life that we should have lived, dying the death that we deserved. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.